Good afternoon. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and I want to welcome you all here. Your first test is to figure out which of the speakers live in Washington and which in Silicon Valley. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe another point is which are employed and which are self-employed. Uh, but we're going to have an interesting discussion. Uh, many of the interesting ideas in the world come from the West, from the frontier, back to the imperial capital. And uh, this may be an example of that. Um, the discussion of homesteading the high seas. We homesteaded much of the West as we moved West. And if you want to go any further West, if you want to do any more homesteading, I guess it would have to be the high seas. And, and one of the questions that I have in thinking about this is, are the oceans the next frontier? We used to talk about space as the last frontier. I, I don't like the idea of last frontier. There's always got to be another frontier. Maybe, uh, maybe the oceans will be that. Is homesteading the ocean a, a way of achieving libertarian utopia, as some people have argued over the years? Um, or is it a way of achieving ecotopia, which is certainly popular with a lot of people these days? Could it be both? Um, I thought Reason Magazine, Catherine Mangu Ward, did a nice job uh, recently in summarizing what she called an idea that has long attracted libertarians and others who would like to see a little more competition between forms of government. The idea is to get out into international waters and set up a floating outpost, or 12 or 1,200 outposts, from which people can come and go experimenting with different types of legal, social, and contractual arrangements. And that's certainly a subject of libertarian interest. Are there different kinds of legal and contractual arrangements that the world could be organized on? One of the board members of the Seasteading Institute, Peter Thiel, uh, said something very similar. We're at a fascinating juncture. The nature of government is about to change at a very fundamental level. As bad as things are in Washington, I don't think the nature of government is about to change at a fundamental level here. Um, it's just going to be more of what it already was. So, um, uh, so we're glad to hear that there might be an opportunity for that somewhere else. So our main speaker today will be Patry Friedman, who is executive director of the Seasteading Institute. Uh, Patry worked for Google as a software engineer for about four years until he left to found the Seasetting Institute. Um, he says in his biography that he is an avid poker player, a prolific writer on political theory and philosophy, and an active participant in festivals such as Burning Man and Pensick. And he's writing a book which you can already find online in first draft, but, uh, but the book continues to evolve, a book called Seasteading, A Practical Guide to Homesteading the High Seas. After Patrick talks, we'll have comments from a couple of our uh, uh, Washington colleagues. Uh, Doug Bondo has been interested in the law of the sea since he was working on it for President Reagan in the White House. Uh, some of you may have heard Michael Kinsley's comment that the law of the sea is one of those topics that more people want to write about than read about. So Doug is always delighted to get an opportunity where expertise Absolutely. in the law of the sea <laughs> might be relevant to uh, the discussion. Doug is also, of course, an adjunct scholar of Cato, uh, a senior fellow of Cato, a former uh, editor of Inquiry magazine, and a prolific writer on a number of topics uh, including foreign policy, civil liberties, and 
religion and politics. And then we'll have some comments from Arnold Kling, who is an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute, who holds a PhD in economics from MIT, who blogs at EconLog, and who has wide-ranging interests in economics, technology, and political economy. Perhaps most relevant here, although I won't presume to know what he's going to talk about, uh, but perhaps most relevant here, he has uh, uh, shown an interest in writing about issues of competitive government, and that's certainly uh, relevant here. So please welcome Patry Friedman. Greetings. The screen's coming down. Uh, hello. Let me, let's see if I can adjust this mic to more Friedman-esque levels. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that comes down. So it's a great pleasure to be here at Cato, e even though part of my thesis will be that uh, libertarians are over-invested in think tanks. Um, I was at the Free State Project conference a few weeks ago, and they were similarly open-minded, even though Seasteading is sort of a competitor to the Free State Project. They actually, the theme of their conference was many paths to liberty, um, and I certainly believe in that. We all share the same goal of freedom, and it's great that all these groups are so open-minded that they just want to hear what the ideas are and kind of let them compete and figure that the best ideas will win out. I don't think that method works so well for a whole country, but for an intellectual movement, pretty good. And since I'm, I'm here in Washington I'll, and with a microphone, I'll have a little Obama moment and uh, talk about hope. So while I tend to be critical of current methods of libertarian activism, I definitely think that I have a message of hope. So if libertarians have been misguided in our efforts, then maybe our failure to bring about a truly libertarian state is correctable. And these are dark times where we could certainly use some hope. So these two successive crises, crises 9-11 and the credit crunch, have each brought a counterproductive backlash that where arguably the response of government was even worse than the crisis itself. So we're in a decade where at the end of the decade there may be more and worse government than at the beginning. That's kind of depressing. And I'm here to offer an alternative that does not require winning the war of ideas in Washington. Libertarians around the world, I've just been come back from speaking in London, Copenhagen, and Hamburg. Libertarians there told me that these ideas give them tremendous hope for the future. So let's see if I can bring some of that hope to the city that needs it the most. This is change that we can believe in. And you're supposed to say, yes, we can. All right, so since this talk is fairly short, it will only include some of the things from my standard longer talk. So I'm going to start with why we should seastead. Like, why are we interested in going and building cities on the ocean? Some people are like, well, of course you want to do that. But most people are like, why would you want to do that? Um, and I think it's much more important to convince people why we should do this than to talk about the details. Because once people are, are interested, they understand how it will make the world better, they try to answer their own questions. You know, they think, well, how will you get electricity? And they're like, wait, I've been on a cruise ship and we had electricity. Maybe it's not such a problem. So the quality of question goes way up because people are, are enrolled and using their own mind. Um, on, in terms of how to seastead, as mentioned, I have the book online, Seasteading, How to Homestead the High Seas. So you can go check it out and learn more. We've got a whole big website at seasteading.org with all kinds of information about our current strategy and such. And I'm actually very happy to be crossing off this third point here because it's now an essay in Cato Unbound that came out yesterday, kind of like the last five years of my thinking about 
how to change the world and how not to change the world and what is a framework for evaluating freedom movements. So check it out in Cato Unbound and feel free to ask, ask questions based on that material. All right, so what's the problem? Um, I'll go kind of quickly in this because hopefully I don't need to convince all y'all that government is a problem. Um, but it's the largest sector of the global economy. It's 36% of GDP here in the US, almost 50% in Europe. And that's just direct spending, not counting regulatory effects. And because it's so big, so backward, and so omnipresent, our political system is sort of a meta problem. It's a problem that gets in the way of solving almost every other problem that, that we'd like to. It's not the only meta problem. I, I mean, I'd say that poverty and maybe the limitations of the human mind are, are as big or bigger, but it's one of the biggest ones. So there's, there's a lot of, of numbers and economics that you can bring into talking about the problems of government. I'd like to start with a more, a more human side of it. So this is a story that was in the news when I was first writing this presentation. Unfortunately, it's not very unusual. It's just, just one that happened to be in the news then. This is from August 13th, 2008. A Hong Kong computer programmer who had legally resided in the U.S. for 15 years went for his final green card interview and was locked up. He had overstayed a visa because the Department of Homeland Security sent a key notice to the wrong address. He also had cancer. In detention, his complaints of excruciating back pain from the cancer were treated as fakery. After he lost the ability to walk, he was dragged around in shackles. As he lay dying, his wife and two children were denied access to him, and he died in custody. This story is not unusual, and it's important to remember that the toll of bad government is in human lives. This is how many people were killed in war in the 20th century. This is genocide, starvation, or otherwise killed by their own government. This is individual homicides. So if you want to kill a whole lot of people, government's the way to do it. Now it's easy to think that the problem is human nature. Evil things happen because of evil people. It's very intuitive, but it's wrong. It's like people who blame greed for the financial crisis. People have always been greedy, and you can't blame change on a constant. Other things have to change to allow that constant to express itself differently. And how we organize societies creates incentives that has a huge impact on how people express themselves. And I think that right now, we don't organize societies very well. So the US, in a lot of ways, not all is the freest country in the world, but Here's one example of how bad things are. So raise your hand if you think that you've broken a law so far in 2009. Right. So this is really screwed up, right? When you have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just assume that most of you have broken bad laws, which is probably true. So the, the criminalization of behavior that's widely done and widely practiced is terrible. It leads to selective enforcement when there are so many laws that you can't, almost can't help but break them. Selective enforcement against people with little power or people the state doesn't like. And it also leads to a disconnect between legality and morality, which over time destroys the moral fabric of society. All right, the economic toll. Now, this graph is from an article, The Scope of Government and the Wealth of Nations, from a Cato journal. So you should feel free to use the fact that I'm citing it in arguing against me when I say we should spend less money on think tanks. <laughs> so a lot of money, a lot of arguments have been made for the value of government spending, but they just don't seem to hold up to economic analysis. Here we have 
Along the bottom, government spending as a percentage of GDP in OECD countries from 1960s through 1990s. On the y-axis, we see growth of GDP. There's a strong linear relationship. R squared is 0.42. More money you spend on government, the slower the slower that growth is. Uh, this holds up even if you look at spending on core areas, such as education, which are supposedly of positive expected value. Um, now, one thing that I want to mention, which, which got cut from my Cato and Bound paper for space reasons, is there's another thing that we can get from this graph. So how many, raise your hand if you believe that optimal government spending is greater than 10% of GDP. Great, okay. <laughs> we, 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 we got one person. So another thing that, uh, it's very easy to look at this graph and think, yes, big government is bad. That's my prejudices, and this is data that reinforces it. I mean, I think, it's, it, I think it's true, but it's very easy to see. And it's much harder to look at this graph and say, wow, there's no small governments. And, and maybe you then have to say, and maybe there's a reason for that. This is a very uncomfortable thing to think. Maybe small government is not an equilibrium in the power structure of the world. And if you, ever, if you want there to be small governments, if you want to change it, you have to try to understand why this is the case and intervene in a way that changes those incentives. You can't just kind of hope that if you talk enough, it'll, it'll go away. A lot of people have poor intuition for exponential growth. It's, it, it can be hard to understand, hopefully not this audience, but just to point out how big an effect this is, the, this is the EU. The green line is how fast median income in the EU will grow at current spending levels of 50% of GDP. The orange line is how it would grow at the 6% a year if they went down to 10% of GDP. Um, over a long period of time, exponential growth has an enormous, enormous impact. This is where our modern wealth comes from, is exponential growth. And I hopefully don't need to convince this audience that more wealth is a good thing. But just in case you're arguing with non-libertarians, let me point out that maximizing this exponent and growing wealth quickly and largely is crucial to the development of our entire species. Even though the extra utility of a larger TV is probably not very much, there are some giant problems facing humanity that are currently unsolved. For example, everyone in this room has a hereditary genetic disease, a disease which currently is fatal that kills 100,000 people a day. All of you have it. It's called aging. And it can be fixed, most likely, but it's going to take a lot of money to do it. Um, space was mentioned in the introduction. Currently, humanity has all our eggs in one basket. We're not diversified off of rock number three. And that's a big problem. We live in a giant, uncaring universe with forces far more powerful than us. It's depressing. It's not fun to think about. Much more fun to think that we are this special race created by some being in the sky, you know, just for his purposes to live a nice life. Uh, I don't think that's true. And, and so getting out into space is, is incredibly important so that we don't all get destroyed. So these are two things that are huge problems facing humanity that are going to take lots and lots of money, so wealth matters. All right, so why do we have this, this big, awful government if it's so bad? Um, here's an explanation from my dad. Uh, and this is going from the level of analyzing policies to analyzing institutions, which I think it's an important level to argue at. So one reason is democracy. Uh, my dad's metaphor is, imagine buying cars the way that we buy governments. 10,000 people get together and agree to vote, each for the car they prefer. Whichever car wins, everyone has to buy it. 
It wouldn't pay any of us to make any serious effort to find out which car is the best. Whatever we decide, our car is picked for us by other members of the group. We'd all be driving beige Toyota Corollas, most popular car in America. <laughs> but it gets even worse because in 50 years, we'd still be driving beige Toyota Corollas. How can you innovate and experiment when you can't bring out a product for a niche market, test it out, learn, iterate, and see that market grow? Now, I, I, I've been using this example for a while, but at my talk in Copenhagen on Sunday, someone told me about this East German car, the Trabant, which was built for decades in East Germany, and it never changed. Now, from the, the Cato Unbound paper, I'll just mention another problem with democracy, specifically for libertarians, is actually two problems. One is we're not in the majority. Um, the David Nolan's research suggests that libertarians are about 16%. I believe this gentleman here has a Cato briefing which says 7 to 13%. That's not enough to win any elections, although it's plenty to start a new country, say. The second problem is that libertarians are systematically underrepresented in electoral victories. Why? Well, how does an election work? An election works partly if you're a cynic like, like me and most libertarians, where in that candidates bid for their office with resources that they will get by achieving it. They offer special interest in others who can control money and votes, their influence in the future. If you're a libertarian and you're running for office to not use your influence, what do you have to offer? You can't capture special interests. You can't get as many donations. You have to rely on a broad base of support. And you have this whole problem of broad interests have a higher transaction cost and do worse than concentrated interests. So the problem with getting reform in democracy is libertarians are in the minority and we underperform in elections. So I think democracy is hopeless. All right, so this argument is already at a, a meta level because we're not talking about policies, about laws, but about the system that generates policies. But I'm a computer scientist. I have to be even more meta than that. I want to talk about the system for generating systems for generating policies. Uh, or to be a little more concrete, the industry of government, the industry in which institutions compete. So government is just an industry. It has a bunch of firms. Why, is it, why does it do so poorly? Why is it inefficient? First, it has an insane barrier to entry. Countries ruthlessly protect their sovereignty over land, and there's no unclaimed land. Every rock in the world is owned by a country or apportioned by international agreement like Antarctica. And, which means that in order to try out a new government, you have to defeat some old one, which means that you have to win a war, an election, or revolution. Okay, if you think something like the operating system industry is uncompetitive, this is ridiculous. Like, I have an idea for a new way to make a new country run. And in order to accomplish it, I have to win a war, an election, or a revolution. I mean, first of all, business people, the people who I think would best design a new society and run a new society, they're not going to want to fight a war, risk their lives, get their, get their hands dirty. But it's just, it's a ridiculous barrier to entry to entering this industry. Okay, the second problem is there's enormous customer lock-in. Moving between countries is expensive and highly regulated. Again, to go to the operating systems industry, when all of your applications and all of your experiences with one operating system, it's, it's hard to switch. Versus a website, anybody can just start at one website, go to some other website, it works pretty well. And we have barriers against emigration, barriers against immigration, just the expense of selling your house, finding a new house, finding a new job. It's terrible. So when you have an industry where it's hard for new companies to form, it's hard for customers to switch, of course you get an industry segmented into a bunch of local monopolies, right? Does this 
kind of sound like government. Government is a geographically segmented monopoly. And, and what is the natural result of what kind of firms you're going to get? You're going to get firms that exploit their existing customer base instead of innovating and competing for new ones. Firms that act like bandits, not like salesmen. I mean, this industry is so badly structured that firms constantly steal from and occasionally even kill their customers, and they still stay in business. <laughs> this is a pretty low bar. And looking at things this way means we're not making a moral argument. We're not saying what's right, what's wrong. We're just saying it's an industry. It's not competitive. That's a problem. And it also clearly suggests solutions to make it more competitive. Now, what's a bit more of a leap is the degree to which these problems are connected with us having run out of frontier. So I'll read a quote from a kind of cheesy, surrealistic movie called Interstate 60 about a weird road trip. It's pretty obscure. Has anybody happened to have seen the movie Interstate 60? No, okay. About 100 years ago, Frederick Turner came up with a theory about the frontier. He said the frontier was a safety valve for civilization, a place for people to go to keep from going mad. So whenever there were folks who couldn't fit in with the way things were, nuts, malcontents, and extremists, they'd pack up and head for the frontier. That's how America got started. All the crackpots and troublemakers in Europe packed up and went to a frontier, which became the 13 colonies. When some people couldn't fit in with that, they moved farther west, which is why all of us nuts eventually ended up in California. But now we don't have any farther west to go. Turner died in 1932, so he wasn't around long enough to see what happened to the world when we ran out of frontier. Without a frontier, the, in order to experiment with a new technology for government, you have to fight the old one. The frontier was always a classic place where the slate was wiped clean. Now that we don't have one, it's kind of no surprise that we don't have much innovation in government. And it's notable that it's not that everything is that you try out new things at the frontier and then they're just better there. Innovations made on the frontier can sweep backwards to the rest of the world. All right, so we have a big problem, one that's been around for a long time, the problem of bad government. We need a big solution, something clever and sneaky and different, which is why I think the answer is to open a new frontier on the ocean by homesteading the high seas. This may sound kind of strange, but thinking back to this analysis, which admittedly was originally designed in order to lead to this solution, but I still think it's somewhat true. Um, how does homesteading the high seas help? Well, we're going to drastically cut the barrier to entry by opening a new frontier where small groups can form independent settlements. We want to make it so that any group of a couple hundred people, like everyone here and a few friends, could start their own country for the same price as buying houses in San Francisco. That's pretty expensive, but there's economies of scale that could bring it even below that. But that's not the weird part. This is the Empire State Building and the Freedom of the Seas, a cruise ship, to the same scale. So it's no exaggeration to say that the ocean lets things as big as skyscrapers move. Not move as an expensive, special, one-time thing. Cruise ships ply the seas on a regular basis, constantly. This feature of the ocean has had enormous impact on civilization. This is what's brought us globalization, global trade. But nobody seems to have thought before me, what happens if we build our cities this way, if we build our cities on the ocean out of modular units that can be rearranged, geographically flexible countries, it's a whole new paradigm where you'll be able to leave your country without leaving your house. If existing countries followed our model, then the country of Georgia could be a thousand miles away from Russia in a week when they started arguing. A thousand miles away in a week is not a made-up number. That's how fast our engineers tell us a big floating city could move. Israel and Palestine wouldn't have to be neighbors. 
after they fought about how to divide up the promised land, probably blew up a bunch of it in the process, but then they could take what pieces were left and go their own way. Cato could leave D.C. and take the Hayek Auditorium with it. Any country whose laws were too oppressive would find the best and brightest and their factories and their homes melting away to grace some friendlier land. Now, to some degree, this already happens on land. Capital moves to where it can get the best terms. I mean, it's building new factories, not moving old ones, but it's the same idea. And as a result, you can see that the tax rates on capital, corporate tax rates, are much lower than the tax rates on labor. If we can make labor more mobile, then countries will have to compete for it more, and that'll get us better terms. And this is, again, this is not a new idea. The United States was built on the idea of federalism, on competition between states. Arnold says we need 250 states. Seasteading is extreme federalism. When you have a low barrier to entry, when you have lower customer lock-in, instead of getting the operating systems industry, a few giant firms exploiting their fist fixed customer base, innovating a little bit to capture marginal customers, you get Web 2.0. Lots of small startups innovating, competing, and learning by experimenting what it is that their customers want. And, you know, I keep talking about code. Let's not forget that just like websites are built from code, which is information, so is government. I mean, laws, laws are information. We don't have to make up a new government every time when we start a new seastead. We can take all the best pieces from existing governments, maybe add a few new twists. We could copy our corporate law from Delaware or from the Bahamas. No need to reinvent it. All right, so this is a big, crazy theory, and I'll talk about some of the implications. One is people ask all the time in interviews and Q&As, so what would your constitution look like? What, what currency are you going to use? I mean, are you, you going to use gold or commodities or something? And... You know, if you want to buy me a drink, I'm happy to spout off about Patrick Friedman's theories for how to design an ideal government. But that's not what this is about. This idea is at a higher level. Going back to the, the metaphor of government as an industry, those are questions about what product will one firm launch? We don't want to create a firm. We want to revolutionize the entire industry. Ah. All right, so one of the powerful things about this idea is that seasteading is a technological solution to the problems of politics. Humans are great at engineering, not so great at making politics work, so it's really important, I think, in changing the world to use technology. As an easy example, how much impact did the rhetoric of zero population growth, oh no, overpopulation, let's have less of it, have compared to the technology of birth control at changing population curves? I mean, we're not talking about a difference of tens or hundreds of times, you know. We're talking about a difference of millions of times in the effect on the world. Way better a hard technology than an easy solution of convincing people to your way of thinking or changing political systems. And this theory is also why I believe that seasteading is not utopian. Utopianism is to do the old thing in a new place and just kind of hope it'll be different. All right? You can't change the world unless you have a realistic theory for why things are the way they are now and why they'll be different your way. And I think that we have one. And this is also why I'm skeptical of solutions like trying to win the war of ideas that aren't based on a theory of why we have big governments or maybe you're based on a false theory like just not enough people have heard the word about libertarianism. I mean, writing policy papers doesn't change the incentives of the government industry. So even if you don't believe in seasteading as a specific solution, and I say the same thing in my, my Cato Abound essay, that's fine with me. If all you get out of, out of my ideas is that we need to think about why we actually have big government and intervene in ways that might change those reasons, 
that's good enough for me. That's all I want. You, you're welcome to think that seasteading is a ridiculous answer and come up with your own answers. What matters to me is that we're operating within a realistic framework where maybe we can make a difference. Uh, this is how I feel when people try to make a libertarian society happen by convincing an, an entire nation to, to change their minds. This is also, I think, how the people who try to do it sometimes feel. Okay, that's not how I want to end up. <laughs> so we have a theory, and we have a really big theory. I mean, I'm doing this because I'm a libertarian, and I really want to live in a libertarian society. And that's one reason why I'm biased against methods that may have positive expected value, like a little reform for the entire United States, where a little reform times a large number of, number of people, that, that can be a really good thing for the world. Something like... You know, there are lawsuits for, is one example where a small amount of money can have a big impact. So it may be that, that there are ways of incrementally improving current systems that are worth doing. Personally, what I want is not an incremental improvement, but to actually live in a real libertarian society. So that's one reason why I'm not interested in those solutions. But this idea is much bigger than just wanting to live in a libertarian society. It says that on the ocean, the industry of government will not only serve our niche market, but everyone's niche markets. It'll make government work better, not just for libertarians, but hey, a communist government will work a lot better too on a small floating platform inside a competitive society. Of course, there are sneaky libertarian aspects because even people who are trying other types of societies are within a competitive system, which sort of imposes to some degree libertarian constraints on them. And by, by building these floating cities, we can have a libertarian society without proselytizing, without having to argue people around our way of thinking, without ever having to win an election. We can build an alternative and use it ourselves, not, not, not wait until we've convinced tens of millions of people, and show through our lives why everyone else should live the same way. It's kind of a put-up-or-shut-up approach to philosophy. And my experience is that this brings people incredible hope. I mean, the position you're in before this is kind of you're struggling against monumental odds, this whole society structured in a way that you hate, where most of the people that you talk to believe in very different ideas from you. It's, it's depressing. I mean, people hear, wait a second, maybe small groups of people can get together and build freedom themselves. It's like, wow, we might actually be able to do something. Okay, how big can this idea scale? Um, you know, I, my one full-time job is at Google, so my ambition is to make things that are you know, even bigger and grow even faster than Google. Um, I think about the ocean tax and the government tax. This is a fallen over platform. The ocean tax is the extra cost of living in the harsh, corrosive ocean. The government tax is the extra cost of regulation and wasted taxes. At the beginning, the ocean tax is going to be really high. So only the sectors with the highest regulation will be worth moving offshore. Like, I think medical care is an example. But let's, let, let's make a, a mathematical argument here. What is the ocean tax doing over time? It's slowly decreasing as technology increases. What's the government tax doing over time? Government, our experience is, seems to take a fixed proportion of income, an income which is growing exponentially. Over time, government tax is going up and up, Ocean tax is going slow, slowly down. It becomes more and more worthwhile to spend money to avoid government. So maybe seasteads aren't cost-effective now. By the time Obama leaves office, maybe they will be.
So bad government is a big problem. It calls for a big solution. Bad news is I think we build our whole civilization in the wrong place. And I think we need to build it someplace new. But hey, the good news is we only need to rebuild it once. Once we rebuild civilization once on the ocean, the ability to shuffle around buildings will, kind of, will make the ocean a permanent frontier. Because any group of people will very easily be able to gather together, take their homes and buildings with them, and strike off to form a new city in the ocean. And there's plenty of room for this. 70% of the Earth's surface and almost the entire universe consists of places where you can move giant things around cheaply. Space, except for those few rocks in it, has this same characteristic. So hope for the future. I'm going to finish with a quote from Elon Musk, a PayPal founder who is working on getting to space. Uh, this was when a Wired reporter asked him, called him an optimist after his third launch's launch had failed before his fourth launch succeeded. He said, optimism, pessimism, fuck that, we're going to make it happen. As God is my bloody witness, I'm hell-bent on making it work. And we will. Thank you. Thank you, Patry. There's some very interesting stuff there that ought to generate some uh, discussion in a minute. Um, let me uh, do recommend that you all go to CatoUnbound.org and look at Patry's essay, which will be responded to by three other people over the course of the month. And while you're there, you might also look at the March issue of uh, Cato Unbound, which talked about the high rate of incarceration in the United States and what can be done about that. And now with that, let me uh, ask Doug Bondo to offer some uh, comments on this idea. Well, thanks, David. I get to show up as the prototypical policy nerd and uh, Washington policy wonk and, uh, to, uh, to talk about this. I appreciate your comments, Patry. Uh, that this, I have to admit, is the uh, you know, most unusual policy forum at Cato that I've ever uh, participated in. But as David indicated, it's always a great pleasure to put all of that useless knowledge that I achieved uh, you know, a quarter of a century ago in Law of the Sea Treaty and put it to work. Now, no doubt anybody who believes in a free society has to be rather frustrated about what uh, policy libertarians have achieved. You know, if you look at what government does and uh, how it does it, uh, there's obviously a lot of reason to be frustrated, and certainly, uh, given how long many of us have been engaged in this game, we can, one can certainly criticize the results of all of our actions. And, uh, of course, I have to note that uh, Patry's grandfather is you know, a prototypical policy libertarian, one of the great ones out there, one of whom uh, you know, many of us look to really for inspiration in many ways. Uh, but I think it's uh, important to have uh, activism at all levels, so I'd like to see uh, both policy and structural libertarians, as I guess uh, you know, one can refer to them, uh, working together. Because it strikes me that uh, what one has is a need for both of them. That uh, the question is, uh, let us assume that structural libertarians can create something new. The question is how to protect it. The question is how to make it succeed. The question is how to, frankly, protect it from those avaricious, rapacious, uh, repressive governments that, in fact, are out there. I mean, the policy failures that uh, you know, we see around us in terms of government are manifold. But what I'd argue is, is that uh, policy libertarians, whether it be here at Cato or elsewhere, have helped create, if not exactly a free society, at least a free-er society. And the fact that there range around the world societies that are free-er rather than necessarily free, but at least are not unfree, is very important. 
because what that does is creates more space for structural libertarians. That if one doesn't have a society that at least has some preservation of private property, doesn't keep its hands off of at least some activities, doesn't provide at least some options out there, it would be very hard. Imagine uh, in North Korea what a structural libertarian would do. It's not clear to me that uh, you know, one could achieve an awful lot. So let's assume that seasteading is technologically uh, realistic and feasible. I assume it is. It's not a subject that I purport to know an awful lot about. The question is, can it survive? Can it survive politically you know, in a world where not only do governments ruthlessly control landmass, but they also are seeking to control sea and air and space? So we cannot presume that the freedom of the seas, whatever one wants to call that, would necessarily be preserved if seasteading becomes a real opportunity. This is where I think policy libertarians at least can offer some realistic political advice and perhaps be helpful in trying to maintain or shape a legal environment that might allow an experiment like this to take off. You know, the, the first question is one that I was asked specifically about because of this great esoteric knowledge of the Law of the Sea Treaty, is would the Law of the Sea Treaty allow this? Well, to some degree, the question is uh, the, the technological aspects here. You know, what uh, the treaty does is says that 12 miles out is uh, the territorial sea. So anything within that 12 miles is going to be controlled by any government. Uh, you go out 200 miles, there's what's called an exclusive economic zone. Now, in theory, what that does is that's free transit, but it also allows government management of resources. However, if any of you followed what occurred in the South China Sea last month, now the U.S. was engaged in a spying mission 75 miles from a Chinese submarine base on the island of Hainan, and the Chinese reacted rather badly. Now, we claim under the treaty that we have peaceful purposes here, therefore we're entitled to have free transit, and the Chinese say, well, no, not so fast. You see, it's supposed to be innocent, it's supposed to be peaceful, spying on our sub-base may not be peaceful. Well, what we find is that, you know, despite, you know, the lack of this technically being territorial seas, one cannot assume that governments would not, in fact, assert jurisdiction. And they could assert jurisdiction on a number of grounds. They might argue, for example, that how can they be certain that another sovereign power, or what claims to be another sovereignty, wandering around through its exclusive economic zone is, in fact, you know, non-hostile. Indeed, especially if one is armed. One of the things that I read on seasteading talked about how to defend, you know, the platforms such as cruise missiles. Well, I can assure you that would go over very well, right? The notion that little cities are floating around armed to the teeth off the coast of San Diego, San Francisco, New York, or uh, Shanghai, or fill in the blank, would not necessarily be seen in quite the same positive terms that Patry or even I might see them. There's also, of course, the hook of a potential impact on environmental uh, issues as well as resource. I mean, governments are quite effective at extending jurisdiction and making very plausible claims. Well, what is the waste disposal? Who knows? What will it do to marine life? Who knows? All of these sorts of things would become a very, uh, shall we say, effective hook by which governments would try to assert their jurisdiction. There's also the question about... <clears throat> You know, is this real navigation? You know, do we consider this? You know, I mean, we typically think of ships passing through going somewhere. Well, a seastead that at least hoped to be somewhere over some longer period of time arguably would fall outside the jurist, you know, what the treaty says. You know, we're talking about freedom of navigation. We're not talking about kind of long-term homesteading, seasteading, whatnot. It's not clear to me where the law of the sea treaty would fall in that. That, um, I mean, the problem what we would have here is a mixture of uh, law, which is somewhat unclear and ambiguous, and most importantly, politics. 
and governments are quite willing to step in. They will step in in the sea just as they step in on land. You know, the examples that we have, Minerva and some of the prior projects that try to create land masses and have new. You know, countries, you know, local governments have quite quickly moved into seas control. Unfortunately, one should not assume that that would not happen when it comes to uh, seasteading. Moreover, the law of the sea treaty can be changed can be changed through amendment. Moreover, there's a question of customary international law. The exclusive economic zones actually emerged more through exclusive economic zones and were or through customary international law and were incorporated into the law of the sea treaty. One could imagine countries deciding on a new law to cover this sort of thing, where nobody was thinking about this in the past. Therefore, a law of the sea treaty really doesn't cover that. But if all these new so-called sovereignties are going to start showing up, what do you think the governments of the world are going to try to do with them? The governments of the world are not likely to view this as being good to have new competition and are likely to try to come up with a new legal regime that would in fact limit and control these sorts of uh, institutions. And I think the, the problem here again is practicality. Governments tend to be territorial. They tend to be territorial whether or not there's territory or water or space. So what I'd argue in this kind of a case that in certain ways the best hope to maintain some kind of a legal regime, the best way to maintain some space for human activity may very well be the activities of policy libertarians. That is, absent some uh, you know, action to try to protect this as an option, you know, whether it be legislative, political, or otherwise, you know, other than an attempt to try to maintain the sort of space that's necessary for people to be free and creative in coming up with solutions like this, there's going to be an extraordinary problem. And here's where it matters to have a society that is freer rather than unfree. Because a freer society may very well provide at least some of that space while an unfree society is not likely to do so. I merely think about the idea, let us assume for the moment that seasteads are going to decide they want to transit along the Korean Peninsula and float along the dear leader's paradise of North Korea. What do we think is likely to happen there? What if they show up China's coast, off China's coast? I could predict what might happen there. Or what if they wander by the Somalia coast? In contrast, there is different, uh, you know, if it's uh, United States, if it's along Europe, if it's Great Britain, if it's Australia, there may very well be a different response simply because the societies are very different, have a different vision of individual liberty, have a different uh, sense of legal codes and whatnot. Now, to the extent that one can come up with a technologically feasible answer to live under the ocean, on the seabed, or, or kind of mid-ocean, I think there's a very different issue. The further the reach from governments, the more costly it is for governments to try to assert jurisdiction, the harder it would be for governments to try to do so. The problem, I think, with that, of course, is that to some degree that will probably make seasteading less uh, plausible in terms of people wanting to live there. I mean, my, uh, you know, I have a certain skepticism simply born of the, I look at the Free State Project, and my reaction as somebody who hates snow is that if you want to be engaged in the Free State Project, you have to go to a place where at least you have to have tolerance for snow because there is a reason why small states with small populations have small populations. Most of us actually don't want to live there for a variety of reasons, even though they might be perfectly nice in other sorts of ways. So the problem with seasteading then is to <clears throat> make sure that these are, in a sense, operationally appealing. I think there has to be an ability to transit from them, to go around, visit countries, and a lot of other things. And that runs us into the same problems of sovereignty. Will other countries allow one to visit? Will they recognize passports? A number of other things that I think gets into feasibility. So the more technologically protected from the assertion of government power, I think makes, you know, that is mid-ocean or undersea, makes it harder for them to be appealing in other ways. I, I think that this is a, it's a fascinating idea. I think that it's kind of creative thinking that's very helpful. I commend it. I do think that uh, trying to, uh, you know, kind of think outside of the box, as the uh, saying goes, is very important. I'm a policy nerd. I freely admit that. That's how I describe myself when people ask me what I am. 
because I do, my goal is to try to make this country, which I think has an enormous number of attributes that I appreciate and it's a place that I've chosen to live, I want to make it more free. And I don't expect to make it the kind of free country that I want it to be, you know, but I do hope and I think that uh, the efforts that I make, Cato makes and other policy libertarians make, have helped keep it a freer society. But I like the idea of finding other ways out there and especially to introduce competition to governments to try to improve the process and give people options. So I would like to see uh, you know, further cooperation here. I think this is an effort promoting human liberty that requires people in all, spec all across the spectrum in different positions doing different things. And I think it's an area where structural libertarians can use the assistance of policy libertarians and policy libertarians can uh, build on the uh, success of uh, structural libertarians. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Patry, after both comments, I'll give you a couple of minutes to respond before we open it up to questions. Um, Patry is uh, skeptical that policy libertarians have brought about a free society, but uh, as Doug says, possibly he reckons not with how bad it would be uh, if various policy people weren't around trying to uh, keep the government within some bounds. Uh, let's now hear from Arnold Kling. All right, thank you. Um, I guess I want to discuss uh, seasteading as an entrepreneurial venture. I want to make two comments, one of which I'm going to toss out at the beginning and then not come back to, and then one I'll uh, come back to. And the one, one I'm going to toss out at the beginning is that I was skimming through a book by George Friedman, I assume no relation, who's a, uh, the head of Stratfor, one of these military consulting firms. Uh, and his book is called The Next Hundred Years. And one of my takeaways from that is that perhaps the most important geostrategic entity in the world today is the United States Navy. You, know, you talk about the law of the sea. In some sense, the U.S. Navy is, is the law of the sea, or certainly is the enforcer of the law of the sea. So we get to decide, the, not we, the, those who control the U.S. Navy <laughs> get to decide what is the law of the sea. Um, and... Um, you know, basically, the, the U.S. Navy can pretty much locate and blow up anything that floats. And uh, everybody has to take that into account. It, it ultimately, it affects trade flows, where trade can flow and where it cannot. Uh, it affects capital flows. It affects relative currency relationships. Uh, you know, it affects how Cuba relates to Mexico or, or how China relates to Singapore and so on. And I, I just have a feeling that, uh, you know, since everybody else in the world has to come to, to terms with the U.S. Navy, at some point something called a seastead is going to have to come to terms with the U.S. Navy. Anyway, I'll drop that one. Um, the second point that I'll make uh, <coughs> is that, you know, there are huge agglomeration benefits of cities, and I'm not sure how you can get those benefits on a seastead without government breaking out. Uh, in some way. So, uh, and I'm not sure, sure we have, have the solution to that. Um, okay, so as an entrepreneurial venture, first I want to present you with a copy of this book. It's, it's the first book I ever wrote. It's called Under the Radar, Starting Your Net Business Without Venture Capital. Uh, I'm not plugging the book. In fact, if I were, it's out of print. probably deserves to be. Uh, but it does contain all of my collected wisdom about being an entrepreneur. And a couple of points of the collected wisdom I think are relevant here. One is I talk about using a 30-mile-an-hour wind. I think you know if you're up to bat 
and the wind is blowing to the opposite field, don't try to pull the ball, hit the ball in the direction the wind's blowing. And I think you know, for starting a business, that means you know, go with a trend. Go with something where the, the market is moving your way. And I think uh, seasteading has that going for it. Now, that might seem a little kind of counterintuitive. We're in a world where the magazine headline is, you know, we're all socialists now. But the reality is we're not all socialists now. And I think people who are not socialists, uh, the resistance that I call it, uh, is, is kind of in desperate straits these days, uh, not very confident about uh, what the political system might do for them. And so, uh, there's a market for something like seasteading. So I think they've got, he's got that going. Um, the other relevant uh, bit of my collected wisdom is to position your business offering relative to a well-known competitor. The most frustrating, mis or not the most frustrating, a frustrating mistake that I encounter among entrepreneurs is that you know, they've, they want to describe their offering in its complete fullness with all the sophistication and all the nuances and all the many reasons for it. And you really should be presenting your offering in a short phrase. It's like blank, but blank. Position it next to a well-known competitor. Um, so I was trying to think of sort of what you could do with that for seasteading. Um, you know, it's like a cruise ship, but you live on it long term. Yeah, OK, maybe. Um, or it's like the Cayman Islands, but you can get out of the way of a hurricane. Uh, you know, that might, might be a way to position it. Uh, you've talked about the Free State Project. It's like the Free State Project, but we start out as the majority. You know, that's, a, that, that's a good one. Um, uh, or how about it's like Galt's Gulch, but on the ocean. Um, you know, there's, uh, yeah, so obviously a lot of people recognize that, nod their heads at that. Uh, you know, another way would be it's like Galt's Gulch, but non-fictional. It is non-fictional, <laughs> uh, assuming that is non-fictional. Um, and that's getting closer. But then this whole frontier thing, I think, is really what gets it. And I think uh, it's sort of it's like the Pilgrims going to Plymouth Rock, except in the 21st century. I think that's the one that really kind of nails it. Um, but let's think about the Pilgrims uh, for a second. I mean, they they gave up a lot to to come here. They uh, they took huge risks. They left behind their livelihoods. They left behind presumably a lot of their families, although a lot of them did move as families. And they left a lot behind a lot of their neighbors, although again, uh, in some cases, whole neighborhoods moved. Not you know in the overall uh, migration of the Puritans. Uh, so there's, and I think that's really tough. And I think that the early adopters of seasteading are going to have to do be this, have that same kind of uh, willingness to take risks and leave a lot behind in order to live according to their beliefs. So that almost makes this like a, a religious entrepreneurial thing. I mean, I, I I I think that you almost have to be saying that you're appealing to the puritanical libertarians. Now, is that, think about that phrase, puritanical libertarians. Uh, but that's, in some sense, what you're try, trying to do. You're getting people who are willing to sacrifice some other values and maybe you know, leave behind family, neighbors, and uh, maybe even their line of work uh, in order to live according to their beliefs, uh, kind of like the, the Puritans did. And that's, um, that's an interesting sell. It may not be the, the 
but it may be a pretty difficult sell. I think one of the things that makes it a particularly difficult sell is I think that there, I, I, I've bought into the notion that there really are scale economies with cities. Uh, you see, you know, you'll see the claim made that sort of innovation and creativity and wealth creation come from uh, large cities and agglomeration benefits and so on. And I think that's also true from a lifestyle perspective. I, I know, uh, you know, around here, if I'm interested in a restaurant, I go to Tyler Cowen's Ethnic uh, Dining Guide for Washington, D.C., and it turns out that even though I live in the suburbs, I'm like less than 10 minutes away from one of his favorite Thai restaurants. I'm less than 15 minutes away from one of his favorite Indian restaurants. And for that matter, I, I can call up Tyler Cowen and say, let's, you know, where are you eating these days and have lunch with him. Uh, all those sorts of benefits I, I feel like I would lose going to a seastead. I mean, there's just this diversity of lifestyle. You know, it's hard to picture, you know, Sarah Jessica Part Parker having her next series be, you know, Sex in the Seastead uh, <laughs> without it ending in about one or two episodes. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, there's just uh, a lot of agglomeration benefits to cities that are important. And then, okay, so maybe seasteading could scale up to the level of cities, but at that point, uh, does government emerge? Do people, you know, have a hard time, you know, in an environment with, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people in close quarters and in, you know, a lot of, with a lot of uh, impersonal interaction, are they able to get along without government? And that's, that's I think, it's not clear. Um, and so what I'll finish up with is saying that I think that the problem of allowing large numbers of people to uh, live in close proximity and have lots of interactions uh, without government emerging is a tough problem to solve. And I think that is the essence of the problem. It isn't, you don't solve it by just creating a few seasteads. And we won't know that whether you've solved it until you've created a seasteading community, you know, maybe the size of Singapore or something. So, uh, you know, either we can solve that problem, in which case I think we can do it on land, because you alluded to the fact that so much of government is what I call virtual. It isn't really geographically necessary. You know, it's not, you know, it's not, if I live in a particular community, that doesn't mean I have to subscribe to one cell phone service. We've shown that, I, that there can be competing cell phone services in the same geographic area. And there are not many government services that are intrinsically uh, less competitive than that. Um, you know, I could have, for example, different medical regulatory regime uh, I could subscribe to a different medical regulatory regime, a different restaurant regulatory regime, and so on, uh, living within <coughs> the same community. Uh, so in principle, it's not the technology that's stopping people from shifting government. And I would hope that we would be able to come up with ways for people to shift governments uh, without having to go to the sea. And conversely, I'm not convinced that if we go to the sea, we will really, truly be able to solve the problem of enabling pe people to shift governments quickly. Because I don't think it's a physical, intrinsically a physical territorial problem. It is uh, more of a political and, uh, dare I say, military problem. So I think I'll stop there and uh, let the audience.
Thank you, Arnold. Okay, I do want to get to questions, and I see you made a lot of notes, so don't give another speech, but uh, make some responses to uh, these uh, critiques. Sure, yeah, I made some notes, which now leads me to the problem of reading my handwriting. <laughs> Not an easy problem. All right, so first in response to, to Doug, so he made a, a statement I found very interesting, which is governments tend to be territorial, which I agree with, and I find it very strange to then go from there to arguing with fighting them on their own territory. Governments tend to be territorial, so our best chance at a free society, I think, is to get outside of their territory. And I would almost describe it as our, our last chance at a truly free society. Now, it may be that a truly free society is not possible, that incremental benefit is, is all that we can get. But if there is some chance of a really free society, which is what I really, really, really want, then it probably is far away from current government powers. So I think that we should try that and see whether it's possible. He also mentioned the advantages of sympathy on land which it's definitely true. The more sympathy on land we have, the better. Uh, I, I was just in Copenhagen where I saw the commune of Christiania, which is kind of in the center of Copenhagen. They took over some land, and they have their own drug laws, their own other laws. And part of the reason why it lasted so long is that they had support from the local community. The local people saw it as a, a good thing that these people had their autonomy. So that's certainly true. However, I'd like to make a really important point, which is that in terms of accomplishing the goal of having more people be interested in freedom and having a culture of freedom, examples are incredibly important and far more important than words. How many millions of words of Cato publications does it take to add up the two words Hong Kong in pitching the benefits of free markets? All right? People believe in real-world examples. And going and experiencing a new society with different rules for yourself has far, far more power to change people's minds about what's good and what's possible than any amount of books and columns and any other kind of talking to them you do. So yes, we want to change culture on land too. Yes, the culture on land matters. But examples, living our own life and having it work, that's the best way to change minds. Uh, Arnold, I'll, I'll co just comment on a few of his things. I definitely consider him a, a fellow traveler. He has some great thinking about competitive government. Um, in terms of entrepreneurial ventures, I'm engaged in two right now related to Seasting. I'll just briefly mention one is to provide medical services on a cruise ship. Uh, in Arnold terms, it's like medical tourism, but you just get on a ship out of San Diego instead of flying to Thailand. Um, and the other one is cruise ship condominiums. As he said, it's like a cruise ship, but you live there full time. Note that cruise ship condominiums, while they can only achieve limited freedom and are kind of just a little first step, they solve this problem of cities that Arnold mentioned. Because you, do, you know, not only do you have a city, you have every city in the world, one week at a time. Uh, I definitely agree with him that as a pioneering venture, seasteading has big risks, and it'll tend to appeal to sort of, I wouldn't say libertarian Puritans, but maybe libertarian zealots, those who are most passionate about this new society. Uh, the same thing is true for the Free State Project, right? I mean, if you have to go move to someplace new, you're going to appeal to the people who are most passionate. But I think that growing the society in the long run will happen, not from passionate libertarians, but by creating a place where the costs are low enough that we can just throw open the doors and be like the U.S. was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, have 10,000 people from all over the world moving in every week to make a better life for themselves. I think that's where the bulk of the population is going to come from. And history shows, I mean, if you have a great place where people can build factories and, and make a new life, the poor people from all over the world will come there. Uh, and this 
this general point of if we can solve the problem, we can solve it on land, there I really disagree. The history shows that government cements its power over territory and is very, very resistant to any attempt to get new power over that territory. I think that being able to go to this unclaimed place, the ocean, and furthermore, that, that once you're there in a city, that you can drag your building away with you when you want to leave. I think that this changes the incentives, makes the industry more competitive, and will make it have to serve its population better. I mean, we can, we can argue about how strong, how big a direction that is, but the ocean is fundamentally different from land. It has these waves, which are expensive and hard to deal with, but also it has this ability to shuffle things around. That's a, that's a fundamental, fundamental physical difference, which makes the incentives there different. And as you know, we all like economics, and we all know different incentives leads to different results. So I, I, definitely, I definitely hope to find ways to organize large groups of people better. I agree with Arnold. That's the hard problem. Seasteading doesn't solve that problem. It creates a market to solve that problem. And we all know that having a competitive market is the best way to solve problems. So I don't know what solution will, will arise for that. N none of us here know what, the best, what a better way to organize a big society is. All I know is I have faith that if we set up a competitive industry in which entrepreneurs can try out different ways of solving this hard problem, we have a better chance than if we have a bunch of local monopolies that all don't actually need to solve the problem. I mean, the, the truth is, if, if one of us here has an idea about how to solve that problem, they can't really do anything about it right now. I mean, maybe you can write papers and try to convince people and, and fight, bash your head against the wall of democracy, but there's no way an entrepreneur can really try out a new society with seasteading the risk. Thanks. Okay, let's open this up for questions. We will bring microphones around so that uh, the uh, online video and everything gets it. So, questions? Yes, right here. Uh, thank, th thank you very much. Uh, Charles Rice, Merger Market. Uh, you know, I, I, I just can't get over the logistics problem because if you've got ships sailing around, ships dock eventually. They have to. Furthermore, the resources that uh, would feed these ships come from land. They're, the ocean is basically a desert. I'm, I'm wondering how, since these ships are dependent on land and terrestrial powers, essentially, how they can possibly retain their independence from, from terrestrial powers. Right. So one advantage is that the ocean is the cheapest way to move goods that there is. So uh, definitely want to trade with land. We'll need to trade with land. But we can, we can get goods from any country. So it would need a very large cartel um, of boycotting, selling us goods to stop us. And, I mean, sure, the ocean is a desert, but that doesn't mean that we can't flourish economically. I mean, Singapore and Hong Kong are two great examples that had, they had freedom and a good geographic location, and that was it, and, and they were able to flourish. So there, are, there is a... It's a historical example of governments using the power to resupply. Um, pirate radio in Europe in the 60s and 70s was a big thing. Government had crappy radio stations, and they, country after country said, oh, you're not allowed to resupply here. But the Netherlands, up until the very end, was still willing to sell them supplies, so they all just got supplies from the Netherlands, and pirate radio wasn't eliminated until the governments on land made their radio stations better. So it's definitely a route of influence for governments, but I'd like to, to differentiate between Making a better government on one piece of dirt where one government owns it, that's a monopoly. And situations where you have every government in the world competing. 
trade goods or flags for a ship, you know, related to the law of sea. These are examples where you have every you can you can get it from any government in the world, and so there you're kind of creating competition, and it's much much harder to stop you than if you're trying to get freedom in one place ruled by one government. Over here and then over here. Jason Kuznicki with the Cato Institute. Uh, it strikes me that you uh, work very hard at solving a problem that isn't my problem. Uh, what I mean by that is if I wanted to immigrate, I wouldn't really have the problem that I can't drag my house with me. I'm, I'm not attached to my house. I could sell it, or if things got really bad, I could just leave it behind. The real problem I might have is that a bunch of people with guns would stop me. And it is not clear to me that moving that problem over water eliminates it. What is going to prevent the urge to keep people in or to keep people out? That's the real problem here, is that organized groups of people deny entry or deny exit. And putting that over water versus putting it over land doesn't really change the problem, it just moves it. Uh, it would seem to me, if anything, that advocating for much, much freer immigration restrictions would achieve almost everything that seasteading wants to do, and it wouldn't require any, any great new technologies. Excellent comment. Um, I definitely agree that, uh, that's good. I, I like your comment because it's in this framework um, of analyzing the ecosystem. So absolutely, anything we can do to decrease the friction on labor moving accomplishes some of the same goals. It makes government more competitive. Um, but I think you, you're focusing on one aspect, which is the, the customer lock-in, and missing the other one, which is the barrier to entry. And the, the answer is, if, we, if people can found more different governments, then there will be more competition. I mean, basically what you're saying is firms in an industry want to lock in their customers. That's totally true. And governments on the ocean will want to lock in their customers. But if it's easier to start a new government, then you have to compete. And one of the axes that you'll compete on is less lock-in of your customers. Um, and so, you know, I mean, now we, we see with, with Linux, we see a move towards more open standards. People are like, hey, I'm mad that you're locking in my data and I want to be able to get it out. So I think if there's more, you know, if new, new countries can be started, some of them will be open. Personally, I mean, my belief... What I want from a seastead is I want to only have one right. I want the right to exit, sort of the right to secede. I see that as the fundamental right. Then anything else about a society, I've chosen. And, you know, if people, if, if people can start new seasteads, then they can start new seasteads that say you have the right to exit. Um, and you can de we can decrease this friction. But firms will still want to lock in their customers. I mean, that's just human nature. And, um, you know, we can fight it to some degree, but there's still going to be some of that lock-in. Doug and Arnold, if you want to jump in on any of these, just wave your hand or shout at me. Uh, right here and then right there. Go ahead and take a mic up there. Hey, Patrick. Good to see you again. Um, uh, so speaking about um, sympathy from land-based governments, it seems to me it would be a lot easier if, uh, to achieve seasteading if you had sympathy on land. So let's pretend for a moment that President Obama has slow data at the White House and was in the audience at this very moment, um, and you wanted to convince him that seasteading was good for the United States. How would you go about convincing him? What arguments would you make? <laughs> I, I don't know that I could convince him because he's psychologically invested in the current system, but I think what I would say is 
The United States was founded on this system of federalism, this belief that all the states would kind of ally together against common enemies, but that each was a place where we could try out different laws. And right now, we don't have a place where people can experiment on a small scale with new systems. The United States is, is a, such a big system that it's hard to experiment and hard to move it. Um, and if you have groups of people out there voluntarily choosing the risks to try out new things, then the United States can watch and see that some of those things are disasters and, and some of them are good. And I would probably try to cite some of Obama's claimed policies that he wants to do but that he doesn't have support for and say, see groups of people who believe in your version of health care or some other policy that you want. They can go out there and make us build a society around that and we can see if it works. I don't think it would work, but I'd say to him, and when it works so great as you think it will, then the rest of us will learn and want to copy it. Okay, Jim Pinkerton. Thank you very much. Um, I, I very much enjoyed this, but I can't help but think, and I'm Jim Pinkerton from the New America Foundation, uh, that if Thomas Hobbes were here, he'd make short work of this. He'd simply say that within minutes or days or, or, or weeks, the governments of the world, one or another, would uh, just come and conquer this uh, if they thought there was any real value in doing so. Um, so I, I can't help but hear that whenever the, the sort of practical practicalities of, that, that Doug uh, so eloquently alluded to kept coming up, you sort of fell back on the idea that this is sort of a metaphor. This is sort of a metaphor for uh, what the sociologist Albert O. Hirschman uh, called exit loyalty and voice. Uh, and, and, and you've got a critique here. It seems to me that if you were really serious about this, if this were really the goal to actually see this be achieved on the exit, uh, uh, argument that Hirschman made, uh, you'd be talking more about space. Because surely the barriers to reconquest by uh, states uh, has to be a lot greater than just uh, sending a destroyer across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the reason America became independent uh, was because the British couldn't come back here effectively and, and, and reconquer us uh, after, after they, they, they tried to do that. So, and I would also point out to you that the settlement, in terms of your history, that much of the colonization and discovery of America was government-organized plunder. Certainly all of Latin America. Uh, certainly the, the, the notion that the, the, the cavaliers who came into the, South, the American South and set up slavery, they weren't crackpots and malcontents. They were just entrepreneurs. They were just second and third sons who wanted to make money and, and, and found an easy way to do it, enslaving other people. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I think that the model that you're looking for, and again, I have great sympathy for this, is much more along the lines of what Robert Heinlein wrote about in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, where the government spent a lot of money to colonize the moon, and then people rebelled. That's exactly what happened uh, in the case of the United States in 1776. Great. Thanks for the, thanks for the comment. So um, first, let me just start with space and say that uh, we can't go to space right now, but we can go to the ocean right now. It's very simple. Space. I completely agree that space meets all of our requirements and more. That there are some ways in which space is better than the ocean for the long term. One is that the ocean is a, is, is a desert, as, as he said, and there are a few resources out there that we can exploit, but not many. Space, while much more expensive to get to, has many more resources and so has a lot more benefit in the long run. So I think space is great, but it's just the technology is not there yet to, to settle space. I think the technology is here now to settle the ocean. The ocean is a great step along the way to space. 
You also, you said that people settled the frontiers of plunder. Fortunately, in the ocean, there's nothing to plunder except fish. So not too worried about that. And, and you talked about people going to the frontier who are entrepreneurs to make money. I think that's great. I think that's how the oceans will be settled, by people who are entrepreneurs who find ways to make businesses out of jurisdictional competition. And, but the, the most sub substantive point is this question about whether government would go conquer seasteads. Certainly, that's one of the greatest risks. Um, but I, I just don't think that it's the case that you start a little seastead and the Navy's going to come invade it right away. I mean, there is an existing system in international law, a flagging system where countries can sort of franchise their sovereignty to ships by flying their flag. Uh, it's a competitive market, um, unlike, unlike the question of, of what is the rule over one piece of dirt where one government gets to decide that, all the countries in the world compete in order to sell you their flags. Furthermore, there's an existing trend towards the commoditization of sovereignty. Small countries discovering that they don't have a lot of value, but their sovereignty is some of it. The government of Tuvalu derives 12% 12, 12 of the GDP of the country, not, not just the government spending. 12% of the GDP of the country is the .tv domain name. <laughs> Other countries selling stamps. Um, passports used to be bigger before 9-11. So small countries are discovering that selling their sovereignty is something valuable, we would provide them a way to cash in on their sovereignty um, and thus sort of be part of the current system. Another point, I think, is that if all we could get is the union of freedoms in current countries, that would still be a much better place to live, I think. There's countries with pretty good tax laws, countries with pretty good social laws. For some reason, they seem to be in opposition, and there aren't really any countries with both. So that kind of demonstrates that you can have those laws out there without them getting interfered with, at least to some degree. Um, and sorry, I'm, I'm going to talk a lot here because this question of would governments interfere is one of the greatest risks. And it is a real risk. It may be that this doesn't succeed because governments interfere. I, I think it's still worth trying, but, but it's a very big risk. Um, another thing that I, I think it, it'll be very important for us to focus on the difference between local autonomy and doing things that, imp that impinge on other nations' sovereignty. So there's some easy examples. Banking. If we want to have banking, great. If we want to have anonymous banking, it's clear that, that countries like the U.S. won't tolerate it. I mean, they, they go and, and tell sovereign, sovereign nations that they can't have banking freedoms. Um, drugs is another good example. There are countries where people do drugs legally. Um, the U.S. doesn't go invade the Netherlands. On the other hand, if you're making drugs in quantities to export to an existing country, you're kind of impinging on their sovereignty, and they will go do whatever it takes with their guns to stop that from happening. So I believe that seasteads should very much focus on, hey, let us do what we want internally, and we will do our best to make sure that we don't affect your countries. And that, that may not be the type of country that in an ideal world I'd like to live in. I might ha want even more freedom than that, but I think that's as much as we can practically get. And finally, I just want to note that these approaches for how much freedom will seasteads try to get and will they get interfered with, the whole point of this movement is there's no one answer. We want to make a framework where different groups of people can try different systems and we can see what happens. One of the many ways in which that's true is what kind of laws do you have and how much do you seek for freedom and how much do you worry about getting interfered with by existing countries. So different seasteads out there trying different things. The diehards who just say we're going to do whatever the hell we want, I think they're going to die hard, but they can try it. Doug, do you have a comment here? Yeah, I think that, I mean, Jim's question, I think, you know, brings us back to why policy is very much part of the question of whether or not this is feasible. I mean, I think of what's happening to tax havens. 
I mean, the G20 just met, and needless to say, you know, all the big governments are really upset about tax evasion. They're putting enormous pressure on even sovereign states, uh, Switzerland and others, in terms of bank secrecy, tax uh, rates, and everything else, and are willing to quite use an enormous amount of power, and there's a lot of power there, whether it be trade and a lot of other threats, to bring other countries to heel. And it strikes me, I mean, just imagine, let us assume, I don't, I don't think the first small seastead does it, but two or three seasteads appear off the U.S. coast. And, you know, within kind of at some level reach, I mean, you know, 100 miles, 150 miles, something like that. And we see production, uh, you know, we see other sorts of things. One can imagine what starts happening. The environmentalist will show up on Capitol Hill and say, can you imagine what's going on here? It's going to ruin the environment. We have no controls over this. We don't know what their emissions are. We don't know what they're doing to the marine environment. Labor unions would say, oh, my goodness, we can't allow these goods to be exported. I mean, this is outrageous. This is free labor. It's cheap. It's whatever. It's going to ruin the, you know, the American market. You know, the oil industry will show up and say, you know, hey, we're supposed to be exploiting oil out there. They're getting in the way. This is a terrible thing. Might be fishermen. You know, the Pentagon's going to say, well, who knows what arms they have? We've read their writings. We know they want to arm with cruise missiles. Do we want these sorts of things floating around? But it strikes me the main issue is governments will view this as an inherent challenge to their sovereignty. So what I worry about is at some point if it appears to become feasible, you know, that's the point where the Law of the Sea Treaty Conference meets again and we're going to adjust the treaty. Or we hold, you know, I mean, we create a special committee at the United Nations. Any number of forums would do. But I think one has to recognize that governments would work very hard to assert their authority. So my, my point in territoriality is not that the oceans are you know, more territorial in terms of a government's ability to assert their jurisdiction, but the fact that governments are so territorial when it comes to land should warn us that they will try the same thing over the oceans. So that to, for this to work, it strikes me that Patry and other advocates of this have to have some sort of a strategy in terms of what to do when governments do what I think they inevitably will do. And at some point, it won't just be the U.S. Navy. It's going to be the Chinese Navy. It might become the Indian Navy. Other countries are growing. They're going to assert their power. China's expanding its Navy, wants blue water capability. So this is going to become an issue well beyond the United States, and it's going to be a challenge. The thing is, so you give a bunch of, of reasons why people would, would complain about trying to regulate seasteads. All of those reasons apply 100 times as much to anything you want to do within a current country. I mean, there are definitely people out there who want to regulate things, and you have a much better chance of avoiding that regulation if you do these things 1,000 miles away from the territory that they say, this is ours and we'll control it, right? I mean, sure, people, there's environmentalists, and, and they want to control you, but the environmentalists have the power right now to control the U.S. territory. If you make a new system, a new government with new regulations, I think you have a much better chance. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying be realistic about what you're going to face. Okay. I, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and in fact, there are people who are like, hey, let's build floating cities and we'll be able to have Libertopia. And I have to tell those people, no, we're not going to be able to have banking secrecy. We're going to have to have environmental monitoring and regulation. There are existing laws about for ships mainly that we can take advantage of at the beginning, we can say, hey, we have the same waste disposal practices as ships, we pollute as little as ships, but we're going to have to follow those laws, those international regulations. You can't avoid it. But I just think that we can get enough freedom to be worthwhile within that framework. Okay. Uh, one question here and then uh, all the way in the back. Hi. Uh, Zachary Skaggs with Cato. Um, I just wanted to know, um, obviously this is a longer term project, but uh, but in the short run, uh, what effect is the economic recession having uh, in terms of uh, obviously a lot of entrepreneurial ventures are being reined in, and, and what's that doing for the Seasteading Institute? Thank you. Yeah, 
So I, it, has, it has mixed effects. On the one hand, it's a tough time to raise funding. On the other hand, it's a great time to give people hope. Um, so we had, uh, we had a venture that we started working on last year. We're, we were trying to do kind of a, ho a hotel resort, luxury hotel resort off of California and um, had, some, had some potential investors who expressed some interest. And then the recession, the economic crisis hit and interest went away. So it, it, it's definitely an issue. The, the way I see it is it's a great time to build interest in alternative systems. People are very open to that right now because the existing system is, you know, to a large degree failed. So we'll build interest, and maybe it'll be a tough time to raise funding. But eventually things are going to – I don't know if it's going to be one year or ten years. Eventually things are going to pick back up economically, and then we'll have this core of people out there interested and be able to really hit the ocean running, <laughs> swimming. 